I moved here to California from the Northeast where it seemed like everyone who had an addiction problem was really struggling with opiates. We would have an even bigger problem with our pain epidemic if we didn't have the opioids. I'm Yadira Galindo for N equals one, a podcast about science and discovery at UC San Diego. And I'm Heather Bushman. In each episode, we bring you the story of one project, one discovery, or one scientist. But today on N equals one, we're actually talking to two experts, the two you heard at the opening of this episode. That's so we can cover both sides of one coin, opioids. Opioids and this epidemic or crisis of opioid addiction are in the news every day. But what often goes overlooked is the other side of the story, the fact that chronic pain is a big problem too. Many people actually depend on opioid painkillers just to be able to go to work and function every day. Yeah, and there seems to be a conflict brewing between different doctors who disagree on the importance of opioids, between patients who depend on opioids to relieve their pain and lawmakers who want to restrict access to them. Meanwhile, there's both a stigma against using opioids, even when properly prescribed, and a stigma against seeking help for addiction. There have been reports of doctors quick to dismiss a patient's claims of pain, assuming they're just seeking out an opioid prescription. So all this to me seems to scream for balance, and that's what we hope to achieve in this episode, a quick peek at both sides. The two experts I spoke with are Rabia Atayi. Rabia is a palliative care pharmacist in the Skag School of Pharmacy and Pharmaceutical Sciences here at UC San Diego. She works with cancer patients in our Moore's Cancer Center to help manage their pain and other side effects of chemo and radiation. And the other is Carla Marienfeld. Carla is a psychiatrist who specializes in addiction treatment at UC San Diego Health. So we know opioids are drugs. There seems to be a problem with them, but what are opioids? They're a powerful pain reliever in the same class as heroin, actually. So you probably know the legal opioid painkillers by the names of Oxycontin, Vicodin, Codeine, Morphine, Fentanyl. So what they all have in common, why they're all considered part of the same class, is because they all interact with opioid receptors on nerve cells in the body and the brain. So they kind of stop you from feeling pain. And uh, opioids are generally safe for short-term pain relief when they're used as prescribed. But on the other hand, opioids also cause a feeling of euphoria or a high. So that's why when you begin taking them first to kill pain, it can often lead people to start using them in ways other than as prescribed. So if if we know that people can misuse them and that tens of thousands of people die of this yearly, why are doctors prescribing them? Well, that's the thing. A lot of people are living in pain, living with chronic pain, pain that keeps them from working or going to school and Opioids, when used properly, are a really good pain reliever. Here's Rabia. 
We do use the class of opioids for cancer-related pain. It's first-line medications. Opioids are just one class of many different classes of pain-relieving medications. So examples are Norco, Percocet, Oxycontin, um, morphine, just to name a few of the more common ones that are used. And I, I always advocate that we should use opioids where they're indicated. So like I said, they're indicated in cancer pain. They're indicated for a short term for like trauma. So a really bad car accident um, in the setting of surgery, either during surgery or after surgery, again, for a short time frame. And then sometimes for non-cancer pain, when you've tried everything else, medication and non-medication, and the patient is still in severe pain, then, I, then it is indicated for that type of pain as well. Um, so I think you have to be mindful of, is this really indicated? Is this really the best medication? And with any medication with my pharmacist hat, does the benefits outweigh the risks? How big of an issue is pain? According to the National Institutes of Health, chronic pain affects about one third of the US population. That's a lot of people. Here's Robbie again. So I have a biased perspective. I think it's a pretty big public health problem. Um, according to the um, Institute of Health, you know, there's about 100 million people, adults, in the United States who are impacted by pain. Now, these aren't all cancer pain. A lot of them are not cancer-related pain. Um, but I think that that leads into a lot of healthcare spending, but for the patient themselves, that impacts them going to work, going to school, sleeping, having a meaningful life. And then ultimately, I do think it does impact um, their well-being. So depression, anxiety can come as a result or get worse if they already have it. Knowing what we know about opioids so far, I'm wondering what other options are available for pain management. For pain that's not cancer-related, opioids typically aren't the first method of pain relief that a patient tries. Doctors and pharmacists work with individuals to try to find what will work best with them and, and fit best into their lifestyle. So that could be an over-the-counter pain reliever or even a non-pharmaceutical intervention like meditation or hypnotherapy. Rabia says, I think that opioids are not always the answer. Um, there are other classes of pain medications that may be better indicated. It could just be as simple as maybe they need physical therapy, maybe they need an over-the-counter medication for a short term. You know, so I think still what we need to do a better job of is really filling that toolbox up with just more than just opioids, more than just medications that we can offer to patients. Um, and I always believe as a pharmacist that non-medication approaches are so beneficial. And I think in our health system, we don't utilize them enough. And yet opioids are medically really important. We don't have other medications that work for these type of severe pain where you do need a strong pain medication. And I think that we would have an even bigger problem with our pain epidemic if we didn't have the opioids. You know, as a practitioner who prescribes opioids, what I monitor for is, is this helping you live your life better? Um, especially in the setting of cancer pain, you know, you don't know how much precious time there is, so you wanna make sure you're living life to the fullest. And I think that when, where I feel like I'm a firm believer that the, there is a place for these medications, 
is I've seen that people are able to function better, interact better, go to work in some settings because they're on these medications that can effectively manage their pain and also making sure that they're safe for them. I had a patient who was a physician and you know, just miserable, had to take time off from work. We got her on a good opioid and non-opioid regimen together. Um, we called her in about two weeks once we started her on the opioids. And you know, she's a physician. She was very qualified to tell us what medications she should be on, but you know, trusted us and our um, recommendation. We called her back and before I could ask her her pain score or anything else, she said, you gave me my life back. And ultimately, that is what we're looking for, right? We want to look at function, living better, even though this underlying pain may or may not be going away. Let's switch gears from pain management to look at the other side of this issue. How big is the problem of opioid misuse and addiction? And how did it get this bad? All right, here are a couple of sort of eye-opening statistics for you. In 2012 alone, healthcare providers wrote enough prescriptions for opioid pain medications to provide every American adult with a bottle of pills. 20 to 30% of patients prescribed opioids for chronic pain are misusing the medication. That's according to a study published by the International Association for the Study of Pain. But misuse covers a wide range of behaviors, right? So it doesn't necessarily mean someone's an addict if they're misusing. It could mean sharing pills or taking more than is prescribed. So it's a problem. And how did it get this bad? Carla, our addiction treatment expert, attributes much of that to an increase in the emphasis on pain management. So in the last couple of decades, we started recognizing pain more often and realizing what a problem it was and trying to better treat it, and, and that's a good thing. But along with more prescriptions meant just more opioids around, more access to them. Here's Carla. If you look historically, there were a lot of exposures. For example, veterans were exposed during the Vietnam War when they were in Vietnam, and so that was classically one way people got exposed. A lot of exposure to opiates in the past was through um, poverty or living in places where they had exposure to them. So if you were in the Midwest, for example, or someplace that really didn't have a big supply of opiates, the chances of you becoming addicted were pretty small. So that changed fairly dramatically, uh, starting in the 1980s with a new focus on pain. And historically, doctors had probably undertreated pain. Uh, and so it was an important thing to, be con to consider. And there was a lot of promotion of both talking about pain, addressing pain, treating pain, that came from a good place of wanting to help people and, and eliminate suffering. There was also a lot of studies showing that in chronic cancer pain, long-term opiates really didn't have the same risks that we thought of when you thought of your typical um, heroin addict or something like that in, in your mind. And so there was a lot of promotion that it was okay to use long-term opiates and that the risk for addiction was very low. Uh, there was a lot of promotion from multiple parties involved in this. And so we saw this dramatic rise in opiate use. 
The thing about the dramatic rise is that opiates aren't always the best medicine for pain either. So there's a lot of different ways to treat pain. There's a lot of different types of pain. There's nerve pain and there's acute pain and there's chronic pain and there's musculoskeletal pain and arthritis pain and cancer pain. So there's many different types of pain and opiates may or may not be the best avenue. And then the decision about whether they would be helpful really needs to be thought of in terms of acute pain for a short-term duration or if somebody has chronic pain, you really need to think about that. But in the process of us trying to address a lot of pain that people were having, many, many, many more prescriptions for opiates were written. And so opiates were more pervasive in our society in many ways. So people were exposed both by prescriptions that they got themselves, maybe you had a broken bone or something like that and you got a long-term prescription for opiates that then continued and continued and continued beyond when maybe it shouldn't have. Um, or another source is that people had a lot of opiates around the house. Uh, so it was not uncommon for teenagers and adolescents and young people uh, to get them from grandparents or from other family members who had them sitting around. There's a lot of medications that are prescribed yearly. What is it about opioids or how does a person become addicted to this class of drugs? And if you're prescribed opioids, how can you avoid going down that road? A person doesn't usually start out intending to become an addict, right? It, it often starts with, you know, somebody received a prescription for opioids after a car accident or after surgery, but the pain didn't go away and they started taking more and more. And, you know, it can be a slow divergence from, from that path. And so what Rabia says is you really have to stick to taking these medications as prescribed. And you might need to even enlist a family member's help in making sure you do that. And then you also have to prevent others from getting access to your drugs too, right? It's not just you, but other people who might come across or have access to your prescription. So uh, Rabia suggests that people keep their opioids in a very secure location away from teenagers or um, somebody visiting. And then you also have to take responsibility for discarding them properly. So a lot of pharmacies or uh, police stations will have a bring back program. So if you have leftover opioids after you're done taking a prescription, don't just toss them in the garbage where anyone could easily come across them, but look for a bring back program in your community. Or if you do really have to just throw them away, Try to take the time to do something to make them unusable, like mixing them with kitty litter or something like that. So let's just say that you stuck to the prescription exactly as it was. You still become addicted. What treatment options are available for me? Well, no matter how it happens, there are treatments available and you should really feel comfortable talking to a doctor about that, right? So. There's no quick fix, but fortunately, unlike with other commonly abused substances, there are medications that can help treat opioid addiction. Here's Carla. So there's a whole range of therapies available, and part of any substance use treatment involves thinking about your life, thinking about the role the substances play in your life, thinking about the people who are in your life, and how you want to address all of those factors. So good substance abuse treatment takes into account the person in their situation. 
One of the unique things that we have access to in treatment for opiate use disorder versus other substances is we actually have medications that have really wonderful data to support their use. So, for example, if you have a stimulant disorder with methamphetamine or crystal meth um, or cocaine, or if, even if you're struggling with marijuana, doctors have tried various medications. There's some evidence that they might be helpful for certain populations. Um, but for the most part, most of the treatments involve cognitive behavioral therapy, group therapy, individual therapy, um, sometimes residential treatment programs, and all of those things can have benefits. But with opiates in particular, we're very lucky in that we have medications as well that are very, very helpful. The two common medications are methadone and buprenorphine. And there's a lot of misconceptions about these medications because they do act on the opioid system, just like the opiates of abuse. But they're very different for several reasons. So the first one is that they're not illegal. So you're not engaging in any kind of illicit activity, anything like that. Um, the goal of the treatment is for the person to feel normal and not to feel high. So the, the way that they're taken and how they're taken and how they're dosed is really to prevent cravings and to prevent withdrawal from opiates. Uh, and so the person shouldn't be getting high from them like they would from illicit opiates. They also are given either sublingually or orally. And so typically if somebody's misusing opiates, a lot of times they're inhaling them or they're injecting them. And that puts a lot of health risks um, for things, bacterial exposures, uh, other types of health problems from that route of administration. So it's a much safer way of getting the medications. When you talk to people who've had problems with opiates for a while, most of what they'll say is that, I don't even get high anymore, I don't care about getting high. It's just that if I stop, I feel so terrible, I almost wish I was dead. And the withdrawal and the cravings are so powerful. Even people who haven't had access to them for years will often say that they still crave them every day. And so there's this idea that once your body has been exposed to large amounts of opiates over a period of time, that it changes to where you need some level of that in your system just to feel normal. And so the idea behind these medications is that they restore that to the point where somebody can feel normal again. But you still need to monitor the person closely and make sure that, that they are doing okay and that there aren't other problems in their life. Um, and so that's also a part of good treatment. The fact that people addicted to opioids and other drugs can get better is what motivates Carla to do what she does. A lot of times I get asked, why did I choose this field? As a psychiatrist, I think you are uniquely positioned to be helpful to people in times of crisis. And so it can be incredibly rewarding to be helpful to somebody when they're struggling with depression or bipolar disorder and, and they're manic and then they're coming out of their mania and they're trying to put their lives back together. Um, even somebody with schizophrenia who's, who's hearing voices or struggling with reality, um, they oftentimes need the most support. But a lot of the treatments for psychiatric disorders the medications can work and sometimes there's good effect, but sometimes there's not. With substance abuse treatment, the first time as a resident I went in and, and I saw somebody who came in and was looking terrible, um, had been living on the street, had been injecting drugs, had recently had um, a pretty terrible infection as a result of injecting drugs. 
and was started in the program, was coming to groups daily, was started on methadone as the medication. And within a matter of weeks, I saw this person again, and it was like night and day in a way that I'd never seen anything quite that dramatic in such a rapid time um, in other parts of being a psychiatrist. And it really struck home to me how powerful a truly helpful medication can be in changing somebody's life. That's not to say that people don't struggle with addiction. People have relapses and there, there are ups and downs and that's par for the course uh, and you have to just understand that. But helping people with addiction, they really do get better and you see it every day in your practice. And so that to me is really incredibly rewarding. What should people do? Both groups of people, those in pain as well as those addicted to opioids or in danger of becoming addicted. Rabia, our palliative care pharmacist, says, take precautions, but don't live in pain needlessly. So first, just focusing on if they are on pain medication, I would advocate that they take their medication as prescribed. Um, they really understand how long they need to take the medication for. Um, they're mindful about the effects and side effects of these medications and that when they're done taking the medication, whatever remainder medication they have, that they discard it. Mm. Um, I think that if you're not on medication or if your loved one is suffering from pain and they're not on medication and they're fearful of opioids, understanding that there are so many other options beyond just opioids mm. um, and beyond just medication, but not, um, I guess, allowing the pain to continue to impact your life um, when there are some options. Yeah, for just live in pain. Yeah, right? yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, but ultimately, just being safe with the medications if you are prescribed opioids, realizing that, you know, you may not be, uh, this might not be the most valuable thing you consider, but there may be other people who may be trying to take it and steal it. And mm -hmm. now I hear that at open houses for real estate that people go through other people's medicine cabinets to steal opioids or through their drawers because they know the common places where people keep it. So understanding um, that there, we do live in this world where you know prescription drug abuse is a huge problem as well as pain management yeah. or pain and um, being careful with those medications. Yeah, it's a balance, right? Always a balance. <laughs> that isn't hard to maintain, but definitely a goal to strive towards. And here's Carla, our addiction treatment specialist, on getting help. I think navigating the addiction treatment system is really challenging because there's a lot of people with a lot of opinions out there. And it's a pretty fragmented system. There's public systems, there's private systems, there's residential treatment, there's outpatient treatment, there's uh, medications, there's no medications. There's a lot of philosophies that are pervasive. In medicine and as a physician scientist, What's really important to me isn't the idea of, I think this is the best treatment, or even that this treatment feels the best in terms of my values. I wanna know what works for the majority of people or wor works for certain populations of people. And so we have ways of studying these things to see what's helpful. Initially, even for doctors, the idea of treating an opiate addiction with something that acts on the opiate system is a pretty foreign concept and many people would say, well, why would you even do that? But then when you see the data of people 
coming out of these treatments or receiving these treatments and they have decreased criminal activity, they're more likely to return to work, they're more likely to have better relationships. When you see that, you have to say to yourself, okay, well maybe that outcome warrants looking at some of these other things. So in somebody who's trying to seek treatment, you get all kinds of mixed messages about what's better, what's not, you know, abstinence only versus harm reduction. You hear all these buzz terms and it's hard to know what they mean. But I would suggest trying to stick to things like the National Institute of Drug Abuse has a website with important information. The CDC has a website with important information. Trying to find things that are based on studies that show evidence for being helpful and consistently, not just one study. But over time, you know, we've had 40 years of experience. So we have some time to have some good data on what is helpful and what is not helpful. The other thing is that patients may not always be ready to come into treatment. They may not be at a place where they're able to do that. And that doesn't mean that there's nothing that either that person can do or the person who cares about them can do. So in particular with opiates, the biggest risk isn't toxicity to the body. The biggest risk isn't that you know, you're, you fry your brain or some of these other stereotypes that we hear with, with drugs. The biggest risk is overdose, and that's what kills people. And what happens when people overdose is they stop breathing. And so there are ways for you to get what are called naloxone kits or Narcan kits. Um, that family members can have, that the person themselves can have. If they're using with other friends and somebody overdoses, that they can use it with their friends. If family members are around somebody and they overdose, that they can use it. And so it's worth reaching out to healthcare providers to get educated on how do I get one of these kits and how do I use it. We've been using opioids actually for quite a while to treat pain management. What does the future look like in terms of preventing and treating opioid abuse? Both of our experts told me about some interesting new technologies coming down the pike. First, Rabia told me that researchers are working on new opioid pill formulations that are specially made so that if somebody tried just to melt them or crush them, they're completely inactivated. Uh, so that prevents people from misusing them in order to inject or snort the drug. And then here's Carla on better ways to treat opioid addiction. There are a lot of challenges with the treatment. The biggest one for most of the treatment is it needs to be daily. And so you, so because these are controlled substances, there's a lot of structure around how doctors can prescribe them, in what settings doctors can prescribe them. And so access to these medications is quite limited and it's a big problem. There's also special training required for physicians to be able to prescribe these medications, and so not every doctor can, can prescribe them, and in fact, many can't. And so access is a big issue. Being able to take them every day is a big issue. So they're looking at ways of developing either implants or patches. There's actually an implant now um, that's available. There are, there are pros and cons to a lot of these approaches because they're new. But I think over time, what you're gonna be seeing is improved delivery mechanisms, improved ways to access these treatments. So here at UCSD, I think paying attention to this population and trying to help this population is a priority. 
We're just getting started. We haven't quite been able to develop the clinic yet. We're moving into some new space. So we're very excited about that. But I think in the future, we're gonna be working very hard to try to deliver this state-of-the-art care to patients and really try to make sure that there is access for patients in the San Diego community. That's it for this episode. My takeaway, don't be afraid to get help, whether you're living with pain or addiction. For sure. And I hope this was helpful. For N equals one, I'm Yadira. And I'm Heather. Thanks for joining us.